Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As happy and joyous an occasion as Christmas may be, I think it is also for many folks, and perhaps even for you as well, a bittersweet kind of a festival. It can be a painful time to remember the people that you've lost. There's an empty seat at the dinner table or there's some tradition that's missing because the one who did it, who always did that tradition, they're gone. And when folks pack up and leave, there can be more than just your average post-party letdown. The absence of your loved ones is real and it can pierce you like a sword. I always think about the bittersweet character of Christmas when I hear Simeon's words to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. The church feels it too. We go from a joyous celebration on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day to what is traditionally called a low Sunday. It's not low because it's less important than Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, but it's low because like the Sunday after Easter, it traditionally has the lowest attendance of the year, although today's not bad considering the ice out there. Nicely done. But we feel the absence of folks who aren't here, especially if it's your loved ones who are missing from the pews. It can be tough to keep up the good cheer, even though we're still only on the fifth day of Christmas. We grieve the absence and loss of our loved ones. But it's important to know that there are two kinds of grief. There is hopeless grief and hopeful grief. Hopeless grief is the grief of this world. It is a grief that can never do anything more than sit in stunned silence, assuming that the story is over, assuming that what you see is what you get, and that when your loved ones are gone, all that's left for you is pain. But then there is the grief of Christians, and it is a hopeful grief, as paradoxical as that sounds. That doesn't mean that Christian grief, hopeful grief, it doesn't deny the pain of loss. In fact, when Christians grieve, they are honest about the pain. We don't sugarcoat things. We don't fall back on platitudes or false comforts. Christians acknowledge the fact that this is not how things were meant to be. We were not meant to lose our loved ones. But we do lose them because sin brings death. And Christian grief knows just how terrible such loss really is. And so it is an even deeper, a deeper grief than the grief of the world. But it is hopeful. Hopeful grief doesn't resign itself to the despair that distance and death seem to invite. And a big part of that hopefulness is knowing that your loved ones never really belonged to you in the first place. They belonged to God. There is a lesson for us in how we should think of our loved ones from the gospel this morning. When Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, they were carrying out this bit of the law that goes way, way back, all the way back to the Passover. God had sent nine plagues on the land of Egypt, showing his power and putting Pharaoh to shame. And the last plague, the tenth one, was the worst. To prepare for that plague, God gave the people instructions. They were to take a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb. 
and they were to kill it, to eat for dinner on the night of the Passover, and they were to take the blood and use it to paint around the frame of the doors of their houses in which they ate the Passover meal. For the tenth plague, God was going to pass through the land of Egypt and kill all the firstborn in the land, man and beast. But when he saw the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites' houses, he would pass over those houses and no plague would befall them. At midnight, God struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive in the dungeon. And it was such a terrible judgment on the land that Pharaoh could not bear it any longer. He told the people of Israel to be gone immediately. In the midst of their departure, their exodus from Egypt, God gave instructions to Moses. He said this, Consecrate, set apart for me, all your firstborn. Every firstborn of man and animal is mine, God said. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. But God had spared the firstborn of the people of Israel. And in doing so, he spared the whole nation by rescuing them from Egypt. As a memorial of that rescue, he said, the firstborn of man and animal is mine. The animals they were to offer as sacrifices. And for the sons, they were to pay a ransom to God with a lamb, or if they could not afford it, with two turtle doves or two pigeons like Mary and Joseph did. Their son would be on loan to them, though he really belonged to God. Of course, what they memorialized by presenting their firstborn son in the temple is true of everyone as well. Everyone belongs to God. All of your people, all your family and friends, they're all his. They're all on loan to you from God. That's really hard for us. It's hard enough for us to grasp that all of our stuff belongs to God. All of your money and your possessions, your home, your car, your food, your clothes, everything that you've got, it's all on loan to you by God. You can feel how hard that is when you consider giving some portion back to him in church or when you consider giving something to those in need. We inevitably feel like we're giving away something that belongs to us as opposed to giving away God's stuff that he has entrusted to our care. We are stewards managers of God's gifts. Everything that we have belongs to him. It's hard enough for us to grasp that our stuff belongs to God. How about your people? How about your children, your spouse, your parents, your friends? To make the point as vivid as possible, remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. One day God told Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loved, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Isaac was the son of promise, the one through whom the promise given to Abraham was to be fulfilled, the offspring that would turn into a great nation. And now, God was asking Abraham to give him back. What about the promise? Not to mention the ordinary, humane love of a father for his son. How could Abraham possibly carry this out? And make no mistake, it wasn't 
a leap of faith that Abraham could have mustered on his own. He didn't just close his eyes and grit his teeth and hope for the best. Such faith as his, that trusts in God in this way, comes to sinners only as a gift of the Holy Spirit. What was it that Abraham believed? He believed in the first place that his son was a gift from God. That his son, Isaac, actually belonged to God. That he was on loan to Abraham from God. He believed that as much as his son was loved by his earthly father, his heavenly father loved him infinitely more. And none of that would have spared Abraham any grief. But it would have meant that he grieved with hope. For not only did he believe that his son actually belonged to God, but he also believed that God could and would raise him from the dead. That this sacrifice on the top of Mount Moriah would not be the end of the story. When God takes our loved ones from us, he puts us to the same sort of test as he did to Abraham. God desires to know whether we'll grieve hopelessly or hopefully. He wants to know whether we believe that our loved ones belong to us or to him. He wants to see if we fear, love, and trust in him above all things. I can't imagine what Mary must have felt when Simeon told her that a sword would pierce through her own soul as well. I think that he must have meant what she would experience as she stood at the foot of the cross and watched her son breathe his last. Besides all of the messianic expectations, the hope of so many that Jesus would save Israel, the faith that they had placed in him, which all seemed to be in vain now as he died before their eyes. Besides all of that, there was the ordinary, humane love of a mother for her son. What a sword it was that pierced through her soul. And yet it was not the end of the story. For God the Father could and did raise Jesus from the dead. He brought him out of the grave and exalted him to his own right hand to rule over his kingdom in blessedness forever. But this is the crucial point right here. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he did not go back to his father to remain there, distant from you and me. In fact, risen and glorified, he continues to do just what he did on the night when he was betrayed. He hands himself over to you. He hands even his body and blood to you. God the Father gives his Son to you. He doesn't hold him back. He doesn't worry, saying, you can never love him the way I do. He doesn't say, he's mine and you can't have him. He hands over his firstborn and only begotten Son, and he gives him to you. He gives him to you as your Savior, your substitute, your ransom, the perfect sacrifice to redeem you. He gives him to you as your righteousness, covering all your sin. He gives him to you, not on loan, not to be returned one day, but forever as your life and salvation. He gives you his son so that you can confess with Simeon today, tomorrow, until the day you die. Lord, now you are letting your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled, for my own eyes have seen your salvation. Imagine what great hope you'll give to your loved ones as they one day grieve your loss. What great hope they can enjoy knowing that by the gift of God's Son to you, you have departed in peace according to God's word. You have departed as God's own possession, God's beloved child, never lost by him for a moment. 
That is an important part of our hopeful grieving as Christians, to know and rejoice that for our believing loved ones, death is not the end of the story. And for us, sorrow is not the final word. Christian grief says with Martha at the death of Lazarus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. If our loved ones belonged to us and we lost them, then we would have every reason to be without hope. But if they belong to God and have always belonged to him, then what has really changed? God has certainly never lost them, even for a moment. That is the comfort of a Christian funeral. And at a Christian funeral, we commend our loved ones into God's care until the day that we are joyfully reunited with them at the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which will have no end. Indeed, every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we sing, Holy, 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 with the angels, the archangels, and all the company of heaven, we are enjoying a foretaste of that happy day when in Christ we will be made whole together with our loved ones. That is a phenomenal hope. We don't have that same hope when we lose loved ones who are unbelievers. The death of an unbeliever is an unspeakable tragedy, a greater tragedy than the unbelieving world knows, even in its despair over death. But that does not mean that we are without hope. For the hope of the Christian rests in Christ alone and what he has promised to us. Our grief and sorrow in this life are symptoms of the sin that infects the world and us. Because of sin, we do not see, but rather believe what God has promised. He has promised to one day wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. How that can be in the face of a tragic loss, how that can be is impossible for us to imagine. Just as it was impossible for Abraham to imagine how God could bless the world through Isaac if he were dead, sacrificed by the hand of Abraham. Just as it was impossible for Mary to imagine how Jesus could save his people from their sins as he hung there, bleeding and breathing his last, and her own soul was pierced by a sword. And yet, God kept his promises. He did just as he said he would. And he gives you his own son, his flesh and blood, as a pledge and token of his faithfulness. So that even in the face of grief that cannot see any way to hope, even then there is still hope in Christ. There is no cure for grief in this life, but there is a remedy, a salve that turns our grief into something salutary, something that strengthens us. Just as by God's test of Abraham he proved to be a man of faith. That remedy is nothing other than the gospel itself, the promise of God for you in Christ Jesus. There is no other hope that can stand in this world, and what a great hope it is, that we who are by rights slaves to sin and death have become children of God in his Son and heirs of all his blessings. That is the great joy of Christmas that nothing in this world can take from you. It is the joy of faith in a God who keeps his word and who loves you as his own dear children. It is a joy that the bitterness of loss and absence cannot remove because it is a joy that is sure and certain as Christ himself, a joy that remains for you even when you don't feel it. It is a joy that is meant to be shared, for this world needs nothing more than 
this joy, this hope. He needs it more than anything else, more than food for the hungry, clothing for the poor, shelter for the homeless, more than any physical need. What the world needs is hope in Christ. So let them have it. Grieve with hope, and let them ask you the reason for your hope. When you see someone in grief, don't sugarcoat things. Don't fall back on platitudes and false comforts. Acknowledge the sword that has pierced their soul. Acknowledge just how terrible loss really is and give them some real hope. The remedy of the gospel. The promise of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Freedom from sorrow and tears and even death itself. Give them Christ. He's yours to give because he's been given to you by your heavenly Father. Do just what Anna did in our gospel lesson with her grief. Having been widowed to the age of 84, when she heard, when she saw her hope, her comfort in Christ Jesus, what did she do? From that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for redemption of Jerusalem. To Christ alone be glory now and forever, and the peace of God which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.